Testing, one, that's better, thank you. Well, good morning, I'm glad uh, Carl gave some explanation um, as to what Dorothy and I are about, because you may wonder who are these people that just sort of pop in and pop out of the church, because uh, we're part of another apostolic team, but we're privileged to be based here in Redeemer Church. Last Sunday we were ministering at Oasis Church down in Brighton Sea, and next Sunday we'll be at Praise Harvest Community Church in Tottenham. And, uh, but, uh, for, but it's a privilege to be here today. So if you think uh, you know, we're avoiding uh, Morris next week, it's not the case at all. Okay? So it's really good to be with you. Now, during these summer weeks, we are looking at some of the 150 Psalms which comprise the book of Psalms consisting of many different types of psalms. And Bible scholars have tried to put them uh, into categories in a variety of ways, as many as 20 categories some people have come up with. There are psalms of praise and thanksgiving. There are psalms of lament, both songs and prayers. Psalms of remembrance, psalms of confidence in God, messianic and prophetic psalms, pilgrimage psalms, processional psalms, wisdom psalms, enthronement psalms which declare the sovereign rule of God and imprecatory psalms, difficult ones, that call for judgment on God's enemies and psalms of celebration that are written specifically for a particular celebratory occasion. And today I have felt led to share from Psalm 24, which contains an exhortation to seek God's face. Most commentators believe this psalm, written by King David, was composed as a processional psalm to celebrate the Lord's entrance into Zion on the occasion when David planned to bring the Ark of God back into Israel's capital city of Jerusalem. Although some believe it was written for a subsequent festive commemoration of that event. Whichever of these occasions it was first written for, it is both a processional psalm and a psalm of celebration which contains an exhortation that I believe is a prophetic word to us as a church at this time. From 1 Chronicles 13, we know that after David was crowned king over Israel, and he defeated the Philistines, he decided to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The abode of the manifest presence of God was understood to be between the golden cherubim, which were on the top of the Ark. God was enthroned between the cherubim, and David thus recognized the Ark as the earthly throne of God. And he wished to recognize the Lord's kingship and rule over the nation by moving the ark from its interim resting place during Saul's reign and to bring it back to the place where God's glory belonged in Jerusalem. Of significance for us is not just the importance of God needing to be at the center of our nation, but also that in the Scriptures, Jerusalem is spoken of as a type or shadow of Christ's church, which God intends to be the dwelling place of his glory 
on the earth today. The moving of the ark of God's presence was to be a truly grand and significant event. We're told that word was sent out through the territories of Israel and thousands came together. And verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 13 tells us how they celebrated with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. The occasion would have been as grand as the ceremonial occasions of this year's Royal Jubilee celebrations, except that when the procession reached the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzziah was struck down dead for inappropriately touching the ark. And this caused a holy reverent fear to come upon David, and the procession was halted, and the ark was placed in the care of a Levite, Obed-Edom, at his home. And significantly, we're told in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 14, that God's manifest presence in Obed-Edom's house caused his household and everything he had to be blessed by the Lord. After three months of reflection, and no doubt seeking the Lord, David realized their mistake in trying to move the ark of God's presence in a new way on a man-made cart pulled by oxen and not in God's prescribed way carried on the shoulders of the Levites. Sadly, as we travel around, some churches seem to think that God's ways are outdated. And they try man's way to move God, but his heart is still moved by passionate worship and persistent prayer and not by flashing lights or other ideas of man. And so from 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we discover how three months on, all of Israel assembled and moved the ark of God up to Jerusalem, God's way, with shouts of praise and with singing accompanied by musical instruments, including lyres, harps, cymbals, and the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets. And King David, wearing the linen ephod of a priest, celebrated dancing before the Lord in the procession, much, I might add, to the annoyance of his wife, who despised his extravagant worship, and as a result, became barren, which is a warning to us all not to judge one another's expression of worship. And so much more could be said about the mistake of trying to move God by man's ways and the lessons for us today. But we need to get into the chosen psalm, Psalm 24, which, as I said earlier, is generally believed to have been specifically written for the occasion of restoring the ark of God's presence back to the capital of the nation, to Jerusalem. But hopefully, what I've just shared will help you visualize that occasion and aid our understanding of this psalm as we now turn to it. And I'm going to read from the NIV version of Psalm 24. And so, Imagine with me, God's people, Israel, as they processed from Obed-Edom's house with the ark of God's presence carried on the shoulders of the Levites, leading the way. And no doubt on this occasion, they stayed at a safe distance in a similar way to how their ancestors had been instructed when they crossed the River Jordan at the time of Joshua. 
And here they are, making their way in joyous procession with music, singing and dancing up to Jerusalem. I mean, if Nathan Fellingham's song had already been written, you can imagine the choir began to sing, lift up his voice with the sound of singing, lift up his name in all the earth. They were celebrating with all their might. And they literally physically ascended to Jerusalem. Because as Paul and Paula will know, whatever way you approach Jerusalem, you literally physically ascend to Jerusalem. And as they drew near, you can well imagine how the proclamation from Psalm 24 and the first two verses was made in a loud voice, most probably by the chief worship leader or possibly by King David himself. The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it, the whole world and all who live in it. For he, the Lord, founded the earth upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Can you feel them getting excited as they approach Jerusalem? Who then? Given who he is, who then may ascend the hill of the Lord? Mount Zion. And who may stand in his holy place? They're saying, who can possibly stand in the blaze of his glory? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He, those ones, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, our Savior. Verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Selah. And now, as they approach a gateway of the walled city of Jerusalem, They command with the authority of the Lord. Verse 7, now you gates, lift up your heads. And you ancient doors, you be lifted up so that the king of glory may come in. (laughs) You ask, who is this king of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And so lift up your gate, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. And you still ask, who is he? He's the King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now following the opening prelude, in verses 1 and 2, in which the Lord is proclaimed as the creator, the sustainer, and the possessor of the whole earth, God's people, you'll observe, were then reminded of who may ascend Mount Zion and stand in God's holy place. Now, standing is the posture of a servant waiting on his master. And verse 4 of that psalm that I've just read, to express it briefly, summarizes the qualifications 
To wait on the Lord in his holy presence is to have a pure heart, actions, thoughts, and speech. What we do and the way we think and speak is to be clean and pure. And our affections are not to be drawn by anything that could potentially become an idol in the place of the Lord. And there's so, so much to ponder on verse 4. And indeed, most sermons, when they're preached on this psalm, they major in on this verse. Because verse 5 says that such people who will receive blessing from the Lord, they are, verse 6 says, a generation like Jacob who seek God's face. And at this point in the psalm, the Bible translators have included from the original Hebrew text this interesting word, selah, which also appears in other songs, psalms. In fact, it appeared in the psalm that uh, Al spoke on last Sunday in the original text. Now, various meanings have been put on this word selah. Probably the best understanding is that it was generally a pause in the singing of a psalm to give an opportunity for an appropriate spontaneous response, such as from the musicians or from the choirs or from the congregation. We've seen a bit of that this morning, such as shouts of praise, the lifting of hands in adoration, or a moment of quiet reflection. And in this instance, if you turn to the Amplified Bible, it says the selah at the end of verse 6 in Psalm 24 is an instruction to worshippers to pause and think on what has just been said with regards to those who may experience the presence of the Lord. And so, having personally pondered on what David has expressed, especially in verse 6, I discovered, with the help of the Greek Septuagint translation, that although on some occasions Jacob is used as a synonym for the nation of Israel, in this instance, David was actually saying that the people who receive blessing from the Lord are not just those with clean hands and a pure heart, but they are those who seek God's face as the patriarch Jacob did. David is telling God's people that those who desire more of God's presence and his blessing are to pursue the face of God in the way that Jacob did. I think it was Tommy Tenney, who some of you may be familiar with, who I first heard many years ago say that so often we seek in prayer, what we can get from God's hands. But we're to seek his face. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, for example, urges that if God's people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven and forgive and heal their land. Now, it seems to me, that a person's hands are associated with what they do, whilst a person's face is more about who they are. To be able to look a person in the face, we associate with having a good relationship together. To gaze lovingly into your lover's face speaks of intimacy. And the Lord wants us to seek his face, to get to know him more intimately, and not just to seek after what we get from his hands by way of his benefits. Moses' relationship with God, for example, 
is spoken of in Exodus 33 as a relationship in which God spoke with Moses face to face as to a friend. Moses regularly, we're told, spent time in his prayer tent outside the Israelites' camp, away from the distractions of life and other people. And there he got to know God, who spoke with him, we're told, face to face, as close friends do, not as Facebook friends do. In Psalm 103, David comments how God made known his ways to Moses the one with the close relationship, but the people of Israel who chose to stay at a distance, they only experienced God's miraculous deeds. Now, I don't know about you, we want to experience more of God's miraculous deeds, don't we? But my desire is like the Apostle Paul to get to know the Lord better, to understand him and his ways more fully. How about you? What is your desire? Now, David is, of course, a great example of someone who had a desire to truly know the Lord. He's known as a man after God's own heart. I mean, listen to these words from another one of his Psalms, Psalms 20, 27. This is what he says in verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, which at that time was the tent-like tabernacle, all the days of my life, I should say David's tabernacle, not Moses' tabernacle. The worship team will understand that because I inputted that recently to them. If you don't, you need to get into your Old Testament. <laughs> there were two tabernacles. I haven't got time to go there this morning. One thing I have desired of the Lord, I will, that will I seek. I may dwell in the tabernacle of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in the tabernacle. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted, says David, above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, the tent where we're told David spent time before the ark of God's presence, I, I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice, he says, when I call to you, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. For when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face will I seek. Do not hide your face, Lord, from me. The amplified version of Psalm 27, verse 8 that I've just read says, you have said, seek my face, inquire for and require my presence as your vital need. And David's response was, my heart says to you, your face your presence, Lord, will I seek, inquire for, and require as of necessity. How about you? What does your heart say? With David, does your heart respond, I will seek your face, your presence, for I require this as a necessity in my life. Your material blessing, Lord, are not enough. I need your presence as a necessity. It is clear from Psalm 27 that I've just quoted from and from other evidences that above everything else, David desired and sought after the Lord's presence. And 
we can learn so much from David in this matter. And yet, I can hardly believe it, but in Psalm 24, David cites Jacob as an example of someone who sought the face of God. And verse 6, as we've seen already, says that those who wish to pursue God's presence are to seek God's face as Jacob did. Not as David did, as Jacob did. Apparently and amazingly, Jacob the deceiver, who stole his elder brother's birthright and tricked his father to receive the blessing of the firstborn, has some qualities for us to learn from with regards to seeking after God. And I don't know about you, but I find that such an encouragement that we we can gain from this, knowing we don't have to be perfect to seek God's face. Oh, the amazing grace of God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. It seems to me that David remembers Jacob rather differently to how many of us do. You probably remember him as a rascal and a deceiver. But David cites Jacob as someone who pursued God and who we are to emulate. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, we have a summary of how Jacob is remembered by the Lord. Let's face it, we're all going to be remembered by different people in different ways, but the most important thing is how the Lord remembers us. And in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, we have a summary. God remembered Jacob seemingly for four things. Not as a rascal who cheated and manipulated, but as someone who, one, was a man of faith right up until the end of his life. Verse 21 says, By faith, Jacob when he was dying. Right up until the end, he was a man of faith. Al had things to say last week about us living by faith and not by fear, didn't he? From Genesis chapter 48 and chapter 49, it is evident that at the end of his life, Jacob was still in faith that God would keep his promises and that the day would come when his descendants would leave Egypt and so in faith, he gave his sons clear instructions to bury him in a specific place in the promised land. That's faith in action, guys. Secondly, Jacob is remembered by God as one who wanted his succeeding generations to have both his and God's blessing upon their lives. Jacob not only blessed his grandchildren, as Hebrews 11 has recorded, but Genesis 49 tells us how towards the end of his life, when his strength was failing, as we've just sung in one of our worship songs, Jacob also, by faith, prophesied over all 12 of his sons. Come on, I want to stir up the gift of prophecy here. He prophesied on his deathbed over 12 of his sons. Ooh. Jacob, thirdly, whose name, of course, was changed by God to Israel, was remembered as a worshipper. And fourthly, he is remembered as one who needed to lean on his staff. Now, it wasn't a walking stick like what we are familiar with, but a much longer staff, probably something like this one that I made earlier. And I understand there's great significance in this. Because after a particularly challenging incident in the life's journey of the patriarchs, 
they used to cut out distinctive shaped notches in their staff to remind them of the challenging experience and how God had brought them through it. Their personal staff became a bit like a tally stick or a record of significant times. And so, when in Hebrews 11, which is quoting from Genesis 47, verse 31, it speaks of Jacob worshipping the Lord, leaning on his staff, I think it is highly probable that as he leaned on his staff, he would have fingered the notches that he'd cut into his staff, and in effect, he would be leaning on the reminders of God's faithfulness through previous challenging situations and how God had brought him through. You missed a good place to say hallelujah. Now, of course, in this day, in our country, we don't each have a personal staff to lean on. But friends, as believers, we have the Lord himself to lean on. As, and as we worship him, we can recall to mind the personal experiences and testimonies of his past faithfulness to us. The old Pentecostals used to sing, standing on the promises of God. It'd be more accurate, I suppose, to say leaning, leaning on the promises of God, my Savior. Hallelujah. There is, however, something else about Jacob leaning on his staff as he worshipped of significance. For he physically needed the support of his staff because he had a hip problem. He walked with a limp, and it wasn't as a result of an accident. It was a result of his pursuit for God's blessing, which is what David is referring to here in verse 6 of Psalm 24 that we're looking at this morning when he speaks of those who will receive blessing from the Lord are those who seek God's face as Jacob did. The specific incident that David is referring to is recorded in Genesis chapter 32 from which we discover that after years away from the land of Canaan, Jacob was heading back home but there was one big thing which he feared in returning, and that was his brother Esau, from whom he had fled 20 years earlier, having cheated Esau out of his birthright and also out of receiving his father's blessing as the firstborn son. And so Jacob, we're told, sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau to, as it were, pave the way and hope that this would help him be received favorably by his brother. The messengers returned, however, to Jacob with the news that Esau was indeed on his way to meet him, but accompanied by 400 men, which struck fear into Jacob's heart, and in desperation, he cried out to God, reminding God of the promise God had made him to bless him when he had a previous encounter with God at Bethel, recorded in Genesis 28. In his fear, Jacob split up his herds into a number of separate groups and sent them on ahead of him in the care of his servants as gifts to his brother in the hope that would pacify him. And that night, he sent his two wives. By the way, that's not uh, condoning two wives. We won't go there this morning. 
But at night, he sent his two wives with their maidservants and his 11 sons, plus all his possessions, over the ford of Jabok Wadi, which is some 20 miles north of the Dead Sea. And so, in Genesis 32 and verse 24, it says this, Jacob was left alone. Sometimes it's good to be alone. You see, because he was left alone with God. But he did not, at that stage, realize that. And the scriptures record that a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. He actually struggled with God all night, a bit like an all-night prayer meeting. For this is one of the Bible's mysterious narratives, and this was no ordinary man wrestling with him, but almost certainly a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus, manifested, as Hosea says, as an angel. But as Jacob came to recognize, recorded in Genesis 32, verse 30, was actually the Lord. It was the Lord who Jacob saw face to face, and yet he did not lose his life, for it was never God's intention to kill Jacob, nor you, but to cause him to surrender his self-will to the Lord. And sometimes we too, like Jacob, can struggle with the Lord to, to surrender to his will and his ways. Now, of special significance to us is Jacob's willingness to contend with God and his time of desperate need, even if it had been fear that had driven him to prayer, Jacob knew from his previous encounter with the Lord at Bethel that God had promised to bless him. But the circumstances he now found himself in seemed to contradict that. And so he contended with God for the fulfillment of his promises to him. And in his tenacity in wrestling with prayer with God, Jacob, sorry, God caused Jacob to ultimately receive uh, God's blessing. His tenacity caused him. How about you? I don't know about you. Sometimes I think I give up too easily. But Jacob's perseverance, his tenacity, caused him ultimately to receive the blessing of God that he was seeking after. This reminds me of uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer. Recorded in Luke 11, when one of Jesus' disciples, having observed him praying, asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. By inference, he was asking, teach us to pray in the way we see you pray. And Jesus gave them the prayer pattern. He repeated what he'd already taught them as part of the Sermon on the Mount. This was not the same occasion. He repeated the prayer pattern that we know as the Lord's Prayer. I'm glad that the disciples need teaching to be refreshed and repeated. That, that again, that encourages me. Because some of you might think this morning, I've heard all this before. Well, it's good to be refreshed in the truths of God. And on this occasion, not only did Jesus give them the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, but he continued to teach them by telling them a parable. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and he comes knocking at your house at midnight asking for the loan of some bread. I don't know how you have the loan of bread, but there you are. When, when you've eaten it, you've eaten it. But uh, you, know, you, you can think about that. Um, but anyway, he, he was asking for the loan of some bread because a friend of his had turned up and he got nothing to set before him. And the first response Jesus said is, don't bother me. 
I and my family have gone to bed. We've locked up for the night. But said Jesus, ultimately, the person in the house will get up and meet his friend's need, but, and this is the important but, not because he is his friend, but because of the man's persistence in knocking and asking. Luke 11, verse 18. Verse 8. The NIV version says that he'll get his need met because of his boldness. The good old-fashioned King James Version uses the old-fashioned word, he'll get his need met because of his importunity, which means to actually trouble someone with requests and demands. What Jesus was teaching is that we need to be bold and persistent to the point of actually being troublesome in not giving up in our asking. But let me add very, very quickly, this is not because of any reluctance of our Father God to provide for our needs. Jacob kept on persisting in wrestling with God until finally, hey, some of you, you need to keep persisting, wrestling with God until. God says the un- you're not there yet, but you're getting close to the until. Don't give up. Jacob kept persisting in wrestling with God until the Lord overcame him by putting his hip out of joint. But even then, Jacob would not let go until God blessed him. And so, because of his persistence, Jacob finally received the blessing he had contended for and his name was changed from Jacob, meaning supplanter or deceiver, to Israel, meaning prince of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm looking out on some princes and some princesses this morning. You've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into his kingdom. You've got a royal birth. Hallelujah. Jacob, at that point, realized he'd seen God's face and amazingly his life had been spared. He was amazed at God's grace towards him. Are you amazed at the grace of God towards you? For as Moses told, uh, said, was told, no one may see the Lord's face and live. And so Jacob called that place of his encounter with the Lord Peniel, meaning face of God. Despite, and I can't underline this enough, despite Jacob's character weaknesses, God blessed him for his prevailing attitude. Jacob persevered in seeking God's face until he got the blessing of God. And David cites him above everyone else as someone to emulate with regards to persevering in seeking after God's presence and blessing. Now, I do believe that Jacob's limp can also be a reminder to to us that personal transformation is always so important to the Lord. Indeed, someone has suggested that sometimes in order to come a, overcome our self-assurance, the Lord has not only to wrestle with us, but even, as it were, to cripple us in some way so that we might learn, as Paul recognized, that the key to spiritual power does not lie in our strength, but in our weakness. And it is then that God's in God's strength, we are strong. I believe, however, that today the Holy Spirit is emphasizing and asking us 
just how hungry are we? Individually and as a church. How hungry are we for more of God's presence? How desperate are we for his promised blessings to us? Desperate enough to contend in prayer as Jacob did? For as we've seen from this psalm, Psalm 24, David, who himself had a heart after God, believed that the people who persist as Jacob did will be those who receive blessings from the Lord. And so my prayer today for Redeemer, not just those of us that are here, but those who hopefully will hear this after today, my prayer is that the Lord will cause all of us to become more hungry and thirsty for more of his presence. That we will be people who don't just seek him for what we can get from his hands, but we will be those who desire to know him more intimately. And that we will be those who seek 